I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Keith Johnston. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by VP and Principal Analyst Martha Bennett to discuss the promise and risk of Web3. Welcome, Martha. Hello, and thank you. So, Martha, let's start with the definition so folks understand what exactly is Web3 and what will this discussion entail? Well, the first thing I'll say, I don't think we can exactly say what Web3 is, because in many ways, it's quite a diffuse and all-encompassing term. What it essentially boils down to in today's incarnation is what you might call, or as it's ad- as advertised, a decentralized version of the web. It's based on public blockchains. What it promises is, um, and that's the overall principles therein, that we've, we're getting a fairer internet where users control their own data, where the code is open. So it's around principles rather than exactly what it is. And I guess one point I should throw in here as well is there's a lot of discussion on, on terminology. You've said Web3, and that's what the term we use in Forrester. A lot of people will also say Web3.0, and you'll see a lot of publications, reports, and so on with Web3.0. They are essentially used completely interchangeably today. For those that remember times gone by, semantic web, that's what Web3.0 used to stand for, but that kind of... Um, went away in about 2014 when Web 3.0 started being associated with what I've um, just very loosely described. Great. Uh, Martha, in your new research, uh, the report entitled Web 3 Promises a Better Online Future but Contains the Seeds of a Dystopian Nightmare. Uh, Great title, by the way. Uh, At the heart of that, um, I want to get to something you said immediately about, you know, decentralization and fair Internet. Um, These are big concepts uh, there. Uh, Let's start with decentralization, because I want to I want to truly understand that. Are we talking technologically? Because when I think about decentralization and fair Internet, it's a little counterintuitive for me because I'm not sure it em- emulates the real world, particularly younger generations who would like to regulate uh, for a level of parity in our society. Um, but without decentralization, it doesn't seem like we get a fair internet with this new version. A couple of points on that. The first thing I would say is it's worth bearing in mind that th- all the messaging that we get, it's as much, when we, when people talk about decentralization, it's as much anti what we have today. It's anti big tech. It's anti established banks and insurance company. It's anti government. It's anti whatever. And a lot of the time when you then dig into, well, what are we going to do to make it better? That's when things start falling down. And specifically on the term of decentralization, I would say a couple of things. Um, Firstly, and that's possibly the sort of highest level statement I will make here before drilling down, complete decentralization is neither possible nor is it desirable. (laughs) 
And I'll actually use the, what we have today in the internet as an example, because that deep, deep underlying, the foundation of the internet, those underlying protocols, TCP IP for the techies among us, that protocol is actually the most decentralized thing you'd want to find because that's how it was what it was developed to be but what you have on top of that protocol is quite a hierarchical and carefully controlled structure and that's the domain name system because otherwise how would we find anything and also if i if i go into some of the concepts that um are really being pushed very very hard by the proponents of web3 a lot of them um they either are only decentralized in name and i'll come back to that in a moment or where the degree of decentralization that's taken place is actually to the detriment of the participants because decentralization can also mean you have no consumer protection you're completely on your own there's nobody who looks after you there is nobody to talk to when things go wrong so that that is um the, the downside of that and just going back to the remark that I made decentralization in name only, I use, and I'm not the only one, use the term decentralization theater, because today's Web3 is actually in many ways a highly, highly centralized environment. There is a very small number of companies that control directly a lot of it. And some of that you can actually argue is not necessarily for the worse. So for example, if somebody can refuse access to a particular facility because they're affected by sanctions, that we would normally regard, you know, that's how it should be. But what it does show that this isn't decentralized. There are companies who are in control. And what you typically find that when something goes wrong, you do find who actually has control, who can go in and change the code, who can go in and stop things. So what I would rather see is a grown-up discussion about decentralization rather than the current decentralization theater. Who are the proponents of Web3, these enthusiasts? Now, that, that's actually another very, very interesting aspect. And what I'm about to say is undoubtedly not going to make me popular. But in some ways, I'm actually seeing a repeat of what we had the first time around, which I lived through. I've been on the internet since 1991 or so. Um, in that, you have a bunch of people that I would describe as techno-utopians. Um, they, they really have the, all the best of intentions. They want to make the world a better society. Yet Yes, clearly there are always people we you know with maybe agendas that not everybody would agree with. But on the whole, there is quite a large number of people who genuinely want to make the world a better place, but who also very strongly believe that what all you need is the right technology. And we've already found several times over technology alone, no matter how good, and Web3 stuff isn't necessarily always that good, no, no technology can ensure that humans are inherently good, for example example, that, that, that it'll always produce the right outcomes. But what has also happened is that the, 
the current environment is dominated by speculators because that's one aspect that we haven't really brought out yet and that's the cryptocurrency and token economics aspect of it because cryptocurrencies as we all know they have attracted a lot of big investors they've attracted a lot of speculation like it or not there's also a lot of scamming going on and uh, whether it's around N nfts non-fungible tokens or so-called decentralized finance so you you have that aspect and on top of that what you now have is big venture capitalists and investors pushing the agenda. So you've got literally hundreds of millions of dollars going into this space. And in fact, some people even say that Web3, the three actually stands for three particular venture capitalists who between them control most of the environment. So that's that's actually what's pushing it and what's sad to see that some of what I'd call the more worthy endeavors get drowned out or sometimes even um, suborned or hijacked by the more scammy elements in the environment. Hmm. I'll be honest with you, Martha, this sounds like a scarier internet to me than the one we actually have right now. I want to go deeper into, into the horrors here a little bit because what I was hearing is like two sides of this is one is that we don't want big tech to be running the internet. Um, but they're in many ways creating a lot of the structure that we have right now, which doesn't seem so scary. And then on the other side, we have this utopian set of folks that really do want to do good. I'm not so sure that they can actually get us to where we need to go. And then right in the middle of these folks, which I think in some of your research, you were suggesting that like really code needs to be the rule of law, you know, meaning the, the software, there needs to be some level of autonomy in between. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like how would that work so that we can find a happy medium here? The first thing I would say at the risk of sounding flippant, code is not law. The law is the law. <laughs> <laughs> and and whatever you capture in code, you obviously have to be agreed that's what you want to capture. But more importantly, to your point, the, the direction in which this is going, there is another element that I'd just like to pick out um, where we're talking in the report, I talk about um, nine key characteristics, one of them being open code. Open can obviously mean open source, but open accessible to everybody. This is about public blockchain. And two things I would say to that, but back to your point about big tech, um, big the fact that code is open doesn't stop anybody from creating a monopoly. Because when you look at the code those companies are using, a lot of that is open code or based on open code. You, and, and what we're already seeing is, without wanting to go um, further into that particular rabbit hole, that building of monopolies, um, you can do that just as much in Web3 as you can elsewhere. And no, code is not law. And also, what, what gets missed out is that you know, human interactions are complex and you can't express everything in an if-then rule. So the sheer idea that you can really have everything governed by code in my view, cannot possibly work because there will always be gray areas. There will always be, um, e even if you've agreed these are the rules in the code and then something happens that you haven't foreseen and people get into arguments about it, what do you do then? Right. 
Yeah, and and you mentioned open code. Uh, another concept you you refer to uh, transparency in the code. Um, those seem intertwined. There, can you talk about that? They are intertwined, and and clearly there are many many positive things about that. The downsides are code that is publicly accessible and totally transparent also presents a much larger attack surface. In other words, much greater emphasis is needed on security. And when I mean, it's it's almost I'm almost making bets with myself that when I sit down with my cup of coffee in the morning, how many disasters have happened overnight where somebody has exploited some some code in in some way. But the other point is, and this is one of those what I call simply unrealistic assumptions beyond a small number of like-minded individuals. Yes, just because the code is transparent, just just imagine you want to take out an investment product because you've got a bit of money that you're not wanting to spend, needing to spend right now. Do you really want to sit down and examine computer code to decide whether this investment product is suitable for you? Because it, for, and I'm using this example quite deliberately because that's the principle in so-called decentralized finance. In the current world, that big bank, that whether you like that bank or not, but that bank actually does counterparty risk management for you. And unless they're breaking the law, they would not recommend you a product that they hadn't vetted. Yes, clearly there are always things that go wrong somewhere. I don't want to you know, paint things in overly glowing tones. But there's a reason we have financial services regulation, and you. But but also you tend to place your trust in your bank or your financial advisor that they don't sell you a product that's too risky for you, um, or where, that they haven't vetted. As I said, caveat: things always happen. But in DeFi, the default is you're on your own, and the only way to figure out what's going on is inspect code. Who can do that? I couldn't. Yeah, Martha, it also, you know, you had, you had mentioned um, consumers sort of being responsible for their own data and, and, and things of that nature. I can't, I can't imagine, like, that feels like that is a sliver of the population who wants to be responsible. Yes, people. Um, absolutely. People want convenience. They want ease. And we, um, and I live in a European country, and so I know. And I know you you get cookie pop ups. You get nothing like what we get. That, and I actually take this thing seriously because you know I'm I'm very keen on privacy. Even I despair sometimes when I literally have to make 85 selections just to look at a website. And more often than not, I actually close the website. But I also am fully aware that the default consumer behavior is quite simply, oh, stuff it. I'm I'm proceeding. <laughs> so yes, consumer. Consumers want convenience, but let me let me open another can of worms here. Maybe my symbol should be a can opener. <laughs> um, that what's data ownership actually mean? I I can probably argue that my name, my address, my birth date, I own that. Um, I can probably also argue that I should be the owner of photographs that I take with my smartphone. But what if I use an online utility um, to alter that photo, make it more pretty and everything. 
do I still have full ownership rights once I have used somebody else's tool free of charge? And my, my example is a very simplistic one, but there are lots of tools out there in current online environments, virtual worlds, games, and so on, that allow the participants to make, to, to create things. And those tools are typically free to use, but the what's created by those tools is also stays within the environment. And you could actually argue, why should somebody have commercial rights, because ownership usually means you control what you do with it, over something when you haven't actually paid for the tool that you use to create it? And if I may, that actually brings us to another um, elephant in the room. What's the commercial model? Because Everybody says we need to get away from the advertising funded business models because that's one of the evils of what we have today. And even though, you know, adver advertising funded business models have been around since before the web, you know, soap operas, etc., whatever. But the point being, if you say we don't want an advertising funded business model, what replaces it? And the financialization of everything cannot be the answer because um, it just doesn't work. And also the idea that somebody would actually buy my data set off me, my data set as an individual data set is not worth a lot. What's worth is the aggregate. And yes, that's not necessarily for the good. What I'm trying to, to express here is that there isn't enough thought in what the, the business models are aside from bringing new money into the environment to buy more tokens because that, that, that's not sustainable. It's really fascinating because, you know, and it's hard to argue that advertising hasn't funded the internet that we've had today. Um, yet, uh, you know, there's some protagonists out there uh, in Web3 that are, you know, trying to challenge that model. Uh, and replace it with, you know, the cryptocurrencies and the NFTs and, and all that stuff. But it just seems like another path to a different kind of evil. And in, in many ways it is. And that's why I can only talk about today and I can extrapolate and I can say what I see worries me. But certainly what we are seeing today is, again, concentration of wealth you alluded to, we, or we, we all alluded to the more equal, more equitable. That's not what I see happening. And yes, just like there are people who win the lottery, there will be somebody that, um, you know, is able to pay off a loan because of the money they made off an, an artwork that they sold via an NFT or a, a cryptocurrency gain that they made. What people don't talk about is the other 999 that aren't making money or even lost something. And I'll give you another little vignette because I, I get about two dozen um, press releases a day that, um, or indeed solicitations for participation, <laughs> which tend to start with, we're going to democratize, you know, insert your favorite cause here. And in the next sentence, they say, buy our token today, because an early in, as an early investor, you will get all kinds of privileges. And I'm going, hang on a minute, you've just said you're democratizing something, but you're also telling me that only the early investors will, will reap maximum benefit. That doesn't sound so equitable to me. Yeah, no kidding. It's like, uh, you know, we're trying to get rid of all the rules to create a new set of rules. So before we go into, you know, the, the, the vision that I believe that your research is trying to, to paint to get, 
you know, the separation between, you know, what's real and what's not in Web3. Um, I want to touch one more time about this, this idea of user-controlled apps in networks, because I think we're long enough into, uh, you know, the, the debate over data that I think most users can fundamentally understand what data is theirs, what perhaps is not once they, you know, start using the tools in the Internet. Um, the idea that users would then control their apps, and you even suggested networks uh, on the internet, um, that seems like a stretch because, again, that seems like a very small part of the population that could even wrap their head around that. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Well, I, you're on the right track there that it's – and in a way, we actually see this in the real world already in many situations where you have initiatives hijacked almost by people with vested interests who are willing to pay more to get their view across. And quite often those, those win out. And, and when you look at it in the context of what you might call user-controlled apps or community-controlled apps, what's called community is um, firstly, as we've already said, you, it, you may well find that those with the the more that those with the most control will be the ones with the most wealth. That wealth may either be because they already have the tokens or because they have the money to buy the tokens. That gives them a greater stake in that environment. So if that's how the voting works, then you can see how easily it will be to outvote um, those whose opinion you don't like. And it can also be used to introduce mob rule. And I'm, I know I'm painting a, a pretty negative and dystopian picture here, but the thing is, we, we've already seen it. And what's also um, the case is going back to Jen's comment about people want convenience. You don't want to be asked to vote on things all the time. And also, arguably, do you even understand what it is that you're voting for? <laughs> Because if it's and and when I say understand what it is you're voting for, there are two aspects to that. One aspect being that you simply don't understand because the vote is for a technical change. And in other cases, you fail to grasp the fact that something that is being couched in very innocent language actually turns out to be something pretty significant, but you simply didn't realize that's what's happening, both of which can then mean that the environment goes um, or that community, that app, whatever it may be, goes in a direction that people don't want. And yes, um, because I know that gets thrown at me all the time, people don't have to be there. People can leave. But then, then we're again in that, why are people participating in environments today that we don't necessarily regard as that positive? Because that's where their friends are. They're easy to use. And so just saying, well, they don't have to be there if you don't like it, that answer is not good enough. And yes, I'll also say there will be different communities with different rules. We've always had that. People with different interests, different beliefs, different value systems, that's all fine. What I'm not seeing enough of is how to safeguard against those being abused to the detriment of individuals. I've even seen it to be to be quite specific where um, environments are really not very protective of women. 
because the people who design them are men and they don't even think about it. And that doesn't mean they, it's deliberate, but the outcome is um, detrimental. See, this is just a giant leap in trust for me. Like, I'm all for liberating these things, but then there's, there's somebody I don't know on the other end of this thing somewhere. Yeah. And, and and that's why I flippantly use the phrase, and I apologize to any bank who's listening to this. I'm really not trying to be nasty, but would you rather trust the bank that you may not necessarily love or some random developer in some random country who can do whatever they feel like? That's precisely my point. <laughs> this thing is scary. Why is there so much money going into this? I'm as puzzled as you are <laughs> about this one. There, it, it is fair to say that when you look at it, there are those who will point out that tokens can afford venture capitalists a way of releasing liquidity that might not be permissible under other circumstances. It's not for me to cast aspersions here, and I'm sure that's not the primary motivation. You know, what venture capitalists want to do is make money. <laughs> but I, I, I am completely baffled. <laughs> so following on that then, uh, Martha, what are the three or four things that, that juxtaposed there in the vision, the reality that uh, perhaps you're going to make a recommendation at the end of this for executives to be able to be mindful of or be able to advantage? Well, the, the first recommendation I make is, is, is glib, but is have no illusions about it. So have, have that high level understanding that things aren't necessarily as advertised and and also there's a lot of the lobby groups are actually putting this message that it is inevitable. Um, I don't think it's inevitable unless everybody just, you know, jumps on the bandwagon. So, but don't take terminology and statements at face value. Always examine what's under the covers. And, uh, well, and you know, there are actually perfectly good reasons for becoming involved in initiatives that have Web3 that are based on what we might loosely call Web3 technology, public blockchains, NFTs being one. Where there are a lot of brands with perfectly um, good NFT initiatives um, becoming involved with virtual worlds that may be blockchain connected. What my recommendation there is really make sure you understand what's happening there. And that's why I developed that little checklist for, that's called follow the money. <laughs> you know, where, how is this How is this actually being funded? Um, who, who stands to gain? Um, is it skewed towards early investors? Um, or, you know, to what degree does this environment actually depend on the price of the token going up? So really taking a, a very, very critical approach because an, another trend that I'm seeing a lot of the time that what is being sold is participation and a request or and saying buy the token now and then we will develop. And this is where I really say loud and clear to, to any, um, any of our clients, if they don't have any code that demonstrates at least at a basic level what they're going to build, then it either means that what they've thought about conceptually is so complex, they can't translate it into code, in which case you don't want to be involved, or you are actually giving them the funds 
um, to do the development. And given that a lot of these startups have already had millions, tens of millions of dollars in funding, why do they need your money as well just to develop code that actually works? So is it's and obviously some of this advice applies to all um, software, but I think I would take um, caution to the nth degree um, in, in this particular environment. And how do you get that information? Is it revealed to you on who's investing and what exactly will be created? Some of it is revealed um, and clearly, and, and this is actually another piece of advice I would give, and it also applies to other technology areas. It's not new in Web3, but a lot of the time, companies try and bamboozle you with pages and pages full of algorithms. <laughs> That, for starters, is a warning sign. If you're not able to provide written or verbal statements that make it clear what your algorithm does and the proof point that it does what it does. So it really is a case, and I've done this for years now, and that's why I'm making such strong statements half the time, um, really insist on getting all the documentation, insist on getting the white paper. Some of the stuff is already out in the public domain. And if you just sit down with things, you can do that, follow the money. And if you find that there is a sudden gap somewhere, that's when you want to ask to start asking the questions. So Martha, uh, your words, you say that the technology is not the issue. Now it may be flaky, uh, but even if it was stable, um, I'm starting to feel like this thing that we're trying to liberate and decentralize that that may be precisely the problem or the thing that's the barrier to this vision, which is um, we want a bunch of things ungoverned, but governance seems to be the biggest barrier here um, that will expose you to the most risk. Is that true? Um, I totally agree. That's all I can say. <laughs> cool. Enough said. So what's the big call then? Well, the big call, not surprisingly, is that if I extrapolate from what we have today, the Web3 vision remains potentially appealing. The Web3 reality looks distinctly like I wouldn't want us to go there. But what I'd also like to say is there is hope yet. If we can get away from ideology and trying to do things that are technically and humanly not possible, and when I say humanly not possible, I'm going back to your point about governance. We all know how difficult it is to to govern a community, throw a financialization element into that, and and you can see how it's going to go off in the wrong direction. But when you look at the numbers of people actually participating today, they're still tiny. So we do still have hope to turn this into something that could actually be beneficial to a broader community. But what we do need to do is recognize that need for governance and that that might call for some of the very constructs that the proponents of Web3 don't like. We have a chance here to build something better if we recognize that the techno-utopian vision simply cannot be translated into reality and that we do need to pay attention to how can we build a governance model collectively that takes us off in a better direction. It feels like the everyday company or executive that could benefit from some of these technologies um, need to get involved now. 
so that the speculators, as you said, aren't the ones driving these initiatives, though. What can they do? What they can do, and, and this is, of course, where we have attention as well, is what does the customer want? Because I am actually seeing quite a few initiatives around NFTs where people say, no, we really don't want to be involved with that Wild West environment, because if our customers have a bad experience, that reflects badly on our reputation. You know, we don't want to be there. But then what you also get is people clamoring, no, no, we want to have things openly tradable on OpenSea. And this is where you really then executives really need to look at who do I want to please here? And what do I want to build? Because there is the opportunity to build something better. Some of those um, foundational elements are actually being put in place already. But there is a lot of pressure from the more speculative end, which is a tiny number of people. And that's the kind of pressure that executives also need to resist. Great. Well, there's more to come here. Thank you, Martha. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, Martha. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.